for the request. And I know that you've obviously gone over the statement of the Chachamim that Mishnichnas Adir Marvin Besimcha. When the month of Adir comes in, it's a time that we increase our Simcha. So be as rest Hashem. It should be a great, uh, great Yeshua uh, from the uh, illness, from the disease, from the lockdowns, and various uh, for Mashiach uh, as well. Uh, so, if you remember, <laughs> it's been a long time since we met. Yeah. Uh, we were looking at two bishvat, and I'm not going to talk about two bishvat per se, but I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, different aspects of gardening, halachas of gardening, you might say. And uh, there are some interesting complications. Uh, the good news, I'll tell you, is that in Chutzla Aretz, they are at a minimum, although there's some. Uh, in Eretz Yisrael, uh, they increase a lot. So, if you are planning on gardening, uh, there are things you need to be aware of. And when I say gardening, I don't just mean you have an actual garden plot. Even if you just have a flower box, or a, you know, a, a, some type of potted plant uh, in your house even, there are many things that you need to be aware of. And I'm going to uh, actually talk about um, two halachic areas today. One halachic area is called orla, and the other halachic area is called kilayim. Now, Kilayim will be subdivided into a few categories. Uh, the basic law of Orla is fairly familiar, and it only applies to trees. It does not apply to vegetables. It does not apply to grain. It does not apply to legumes. It only applies to trees that produce fruit. And that is, the Torah says that you are not allowed to eat the fruit that grows during the first three years of the tree being planted. Now we're going to see there's a lot of definition on that. But that's the basic rule, that the fruits that are produced within the first three years of planting are called orla. That orla is the same term as uncircumcised. Uncircumcised fruits that you are not allowed to eat. The unique rule of orla is that orla applies not only in the land of Israel, but orla is one of those halakos that apply in chutz la'aretz. Okay, so be aware of Orla. Now, there are a lot of interesting questions about Orla. What is the halachic definition of a tree? For example, uh, there's going to be a parallel to brachos here. We have, uh, we have uh, one bracha for fruit that's called borei prio eitz. God creates the fruit of the tree. And then we have another halacha for vegetables that are called borei prihadama. And in terms of brachas, we have to know when is something a tree and when is it uh, not a tree. For example, bananas. Now, bananas grow on a tree, the banana tree, and yet, as you know, the bracha that you make on a banana is borei prihadama. So it's very important to know what is the halachic criteria of what defines something as a tree. And this is important for two reasons. It's important, number one, because of the bracha, do you make a borei priha adama or borei priha eitz? And number two, it's important because if something is halachically a vegetable, there is no law of orla. Like you plant tomatoes, right? Tomatoes, let's say, is absolutely a vegetable. Well, you can eat the first year's crop of tomatoes because, you know, uh, it's not orla. If something, on the other hand, is a fruit coming from a tree, there'd be a din of orla. So there's one criterion for a tree that's absolutely essential, and that is uh, there must be a stalk above ground that survives 
from which the tree regenerates. Meaning, let's take a typical vegetable. Typical vegetable, number one, you have to plant every year. So obviously, there is nothing that survives which allows your regeneration. But there are trees, like banana trees, for which you don't have to plant every year, but it regenerates from its roots. Meaning to say, every winter, the banana plant, so to speak, dies except for the roots. And then when the spring comes, it regenerates from the roots. So it is perennial in the sense that you don't have to plant it every year. But halachically, it is a vegetable because the regeneration does not occur from a trunk that survives the, the winter. Okay, uh, so there are a lot of things like that. I'll, I'll give you, I have a little bit of a list here. So for example, um, banana is a vegetable, eggplant is a vegetable, uh, even though it's kind of a permanent plant. Papaya is treated as a vegetable, right? So there are a lot of th different issues here. So that's issue number one. Do, am I dealing with a tree that produces a fruit, or am I dealing with a vegetable? And again, as I say, if you have to plant it every year, by definition, it's a vegetable. And even if you don't have to plant it every year, if it regenerates from the roots, but there isn't a trunk that survives, that is also halakhically treated as a vegetable. And finally, like a banana tree, and finally, even if it is a tree that survives, if the fruit grows directly out of the trunk as opposed to branches, that also is not called a tree. There have to be branches from which the fruit comes. Okay, so that's issue number one, tree versus non-tree. Issue number two is how do you count the years of Orla? Now this is very, very, very tricky. You're not allowed to eat the fruit for three years, but three years does not mean three years from actual planting date. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question though, because I thought that, that like fruits in the U.S. and vegetables are always like kosher. Like I thought. Well, well, the reason they're kosher is let me put it this way: that that's um, the laws of Orla do apply, but in cases of doubt, you're allowed to be lenient. So when you have any given fruit in the United States, you don't know yeah. if it's from the first three years or not. So the halacha is in Eretz Yisrael, you have to be strict, which is why you need supervision among other reasons. In Chutz Laaretz, a suffolk, a doubt if it's orla or not orla, you are permitted to be lenient. Why? Well, that's kind of the, uh, the halacha of Moshe Misenai, the law that was given to Moshe, says that uh, only definitive orla is forbidden, okay. uh, but suffolk orla is permitted. Now, if you had your own tree, however, you would have to, and you know that this is within the three years, you would absolutely have to keep orla. You could not. Uh, <coughs> You could not eat the fruit for the first three years. So if you have a friend who has a tree, yeah, then you if, if you know if you know the situation, then you can't eat it. Uh, the, the ability to buy fruit in stores is because you don't know what it is. What if it's like a friend who's like, oh, this tree's around two to three years? We're not sure, maybe two to three. Then okay. you rule in favor of doubt. Yeah, that's correct. This is an unusual law that you can be yes, lenient sure. in cases of doubt, but only in Chutzler. It's not in Israel. Now, what about like a lot? Uh, well, that's going to be a question. A, a lot of people say a lot is not Israel. Yeah. yeah that's correct. In fact... Uh, or like parts of Israel that aren't Israel legally right now, but are. Well, again, we don't care about the, 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 what the boundaries of the state of Israel are. That doesn't matter yeah. halakhically, but we're looking we're at... Well, what, 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 right. Well, then if you're buying from some Arab countries, technically, 
you would have Israel. Uh, it might, not, it might be so. It might be so. It depends. Okay. It, it would depend. In other words, you'd have to determine uh, whether the area has the holiness. We don't care about the the, the nationality presently. That doesn't yeah. make a difference. But does it have the holiness within the boundaries of Eretz Israel? That would be a very important question. So like a lot. So the question is like this. The question is, a lot is treated as chutzla aretz, but only to be strict. So for example, many rabbis say, if you live in a lot, you've got to keep two days of yomtif. Right. So, so we're strict, but, but to, to use it to be lenient on the suffix orla, that I think we have to go the other way. See what I'm saying? In other words, you treat it like chutzla aretz to be machmir, but you don't treat it like chutzla aretz to be lenient, to be naked. Yeah, yeah, because a lot is a questionable, a questionable area. Literally, Israel. Huh? Say again. I didn't. Hear, I didn't hear you. Okay. Now this. Okay. No, a, a lot is part of the state of Israel. Of course, it is. But but the question is, halachically, a lot may. Why do you Eretz Israel? Like we have the entire is mentioned. I, and I understand, but but if you look in the end of uh, end of the book of Bamidbar, yeah. the Torah gives you the boundaries, oh, and, and the lot seems to be outside of the boundary. Really? Yeah. How do yeah, we know? Yeah. Because of the Red Sea? Yeah, the Red Sea, different boundaries. It gives you gives you boundary cities. Now again, it's a suffix. I'm not going to say this for sure because we, we we can't always match up the Torah's boundaries with modern uh, boundaries. Uh, but many say a lot is, is outside. Where in Torah do we see a lot like like Mitzvah Oh, a lot is mentioned, yeah, but it's not mentioned as a city in Israel. It's mentioned as a lot is mentioned as a city that was uh, occupied by Esav, by Edom. Uh, it's an Edomite city, actually. Okay. Uh, of course, some, some would say that uh, a religious Jew should not live in a lot anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> You know, because it's a very, yeah, well, like, well, there's a Chabad house in Thailand, there's a Chabad house in Eilat. <laughs> for Hashem, there's a Chabad house, but, but it's not, uh, it's, not in, it's not intrinsically a very religious, uh, religious place, Eilat. No, yeah, that makes sense. It's like a part of Las Vegas. Yeah, that, that's correct. Okay, now, the second issue I want to clarify is this. This is very, very important. Uh, when we say three years, it does not mean three full years. Here's how it works. There is a rule that 30 days of a year counts as a year. So I'm going to add something to that too, which means the following. Uh, now, in addition, though, the 30 days don't start until a planted tree set roots. So Chazal have a Kabbalah, Chazal have a tradition that it takes two weeks from the planting of a seed Till the creation of roots on the average. It takes two weeks, 14 days. Which means, therefore, in order to be counted as year number one, I'll, I'll give you an example of this, you have to plant your seeds um, 14, 44 days uh, before Rosh Hashanah. And then, then you get one year. Now, 44 days before Hashanah happens to be the 15th of Av. <laughs> so the way it works is the following. If you plant your seed on or earlier than the 15th of Av, on or earlier than the 15th of Av, then when Rosh Hashanah comes, which is only six weeks away, that counts as year one. 
Then Tishrei to Tishrei counts as year two, and Tishrei to Tishrei counts as year three. So in other words, your actual period of Orla is only two years and 45 days. Okay, everyone gets this? In other words, again, so the point is this. Let's, let's use actual years. Let, let's imagine, we, we'll use Hebrew years. Let's imagine that you planted your tree on the 15th of Av, or earlier, earlier in 5780. So when Rosh Hashanah comes and it's 5781, that counts as one year. Then 5781, Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah counts as two years. And then 5782 to 5783 is three years. So Rosh Hashanah of 5783, we would say the fruits are no longer going to be Orla. But, but there's a little complication. You do have to wait until two Bishvat of 5783, meaning once you finish the Orla shortened period, uh, it still remains Orla until two Bishvat. Now, if on the other hand, you planted your tree after 15th of Av, so you have less than 30 years on the rooting, so then that year doesn't count at all. So if you did that in 5780, you lose 5780. So you have to keep it as Orla, all of 5781, all of 5782, and all of 5783, and it's going to be Orla until 5784, but then you don't have to wait till Tubishvat, meaning when you have three full years, you don't have to wait till Tubishvat. When you have less than three years, uh, then you've got to wait until Tubishvat in the last year. Okay, does that make sense to people? Yeah. So, so therefore, the date of planting, you add 14 days for rooting, and then 30 days, and if you have a total of 44 days from planting, that counts as year one. If you have less than that 44 days, then you don't have that year at all. You gotta have three full years, but then uh, you don't need Tubishvat to be tacked on at the very end. Now, when I say something is Orla, though, be, be sure you understand what I mean. Any, any fruit that budded, right? If you ever looked at an apple tree or any fruit tree, the way it works is there's first a flower, and then eventually uh, there's a bud. You know, the flower is pollinated by bees or whatever, whatever it is. The flower drops, you get a bud, and from that bud, the bud turns into a fruit. So halakhically, uh, orla is defined by the year of budding. So once you define the orla period, anything that budded in that orla period is Orla even afterwards. In other words, if something is Orla, it doesn't become non-Orla after those years pass. Anything that budded in the Orla years is permanently Orla. Anything that buds after the Orla year is not Orla, right? So it's not a question of, sometimes people misunderstand this. People think, oh, uh, the fruit is only usher for these years, and after these years it's permitted. That's not the way it works. Uh, if it budded during the Orla years, it is treif, it is like a piece of pork. It can never be eaten at, at all. Okay, so that's the, so the first issue of Orla is, is it a tree, is it not a tree?
If it's not a tree, there's no orla. Wait, so if it buds this, early, never eat it. Uh, that's correct. That's correct. If it buds within the orla period. The second issue is the computation of the three years. Okay, and that depends on uh, whether you have at least 44 days from the planting. Yeah. So, that's a very specific question because we planted a tree. So we planted a tree at the beginning of Nissan, 57, 79. Okay, so you're, yeah. So you're good because uh, 57, 79 is way before the 15th of Av. So 1579 is year one, 5780 will be year two, or it was year two, 5781 is year three, so next Rosh Hashanah will be the finishing of the three years, but then you have to tack on two bishvat, okay. so, so it'll be two bishvat of that year. Okay. And Again, but remember, anything that budded before that point is permanently orla. Anything that buds after that date is permitted to be eaten. Okay? Now, so that's second issue, right? So first issue is what is a tree? Second issue is uh, computation of years. The third issue, maybe it's the most important, keep in mind, that is most people don't, in fact, your question, most people don't plant a seed. I was giving you a, a rare example of somebody who plants an apple seed no one wants to get an apple tree. That's not the way people, most people don't plant today. It takes too long. So most people buy a tree. They buy an already growing tree. So the question becomes, do you have to start the clock over again? Meaning, let's say the tree is already you know, five years old. Uh, if I buy a tree and I replant it, do I gotta start counting again, or can I say, hey, it's already five years old, so it's not going to be Orla. That's very practical. In many, many cases, it may very well be you don't have to keep Orla at all because it's already old enough by the time you plant it. So here, this is very critical. It all depends on how you buy it. If you buy it with enough soil, usually you buy a tree that's, you know, there's like a bunch of dirt covering the roots and it's covered in plastic at the bottom, if there are, if there is enough soil that the tree is capable of living off that soil for several months, meaning even if you didn't plant it, it's not going to die because it has that soil, it is treated as continuously planted and you can tack on the prior years to say that it's not Orla or whatever it is. If, on the other hand, you either buy the tree without the soil, or you knock off the soil, you don't like that soil for whatever reason, or there's not enough soil to keep the tree alive for a few months, uh, then when you plant it, that is treated as a new planting. And the laws of Orla, the clock of Orla, is gonna start all over again. So by definition, as a practical matter, if you want to avoid Orla problems, uh, you should buy a tree with a lot of soil on the roots, and don't uh, get rid of it. Try to keep that soil. Put it in the pot with that soil. And if you keep it with that soil, uh, it is not a new planting. And if it's not a new planting, there is no orla, unless the tree is less than three years old. That might be a possibility too. But if you know the tree is more than three years old, you don't have an orla problem as long as you have that dirt attached. That's very important, because as I say, it's 
fairly rare. I don't think you've ever met anybody who actually planted a tree from a seed. It, it doesn't happen that, uh, that often, but people buy trees in nurseries and they, uh, uh, they plant them. Okay, all right, so that's kind of what you need to know about Orla. And as I say, uh, if, if you have any shyness, uh, you need to talk to a rabbi because uh, in Chutz Laaretz, if you have your own tree and you know it's Orla, you got a problem. If it's a suffix, like in a store, you don't have a problem, so you don't have to. Orla is not something you need to check on in stores. But in Eretz Yisrael, uh, you do need to check on it. But Baruch Hashem, if there's hashkacha, if there's reliable supervision, uh, that's Orla as well. Okay, so in other words, included in any rabbinic supervision uh, is that uh, the fruit is not Orla. Yeah. If you're waiting on your tree to reach its third year, and somebody else that takes fruit from it, yes. eat, is that a problem when it gets to the third year, or does it not? No, no, it doesn't affect you at all. Uh, number one, it affects them for two reasons. Uh, number one, they're, they're, they're guilty of stealing. But number two, they're committing the sin of eating all the fruits. Uh, okay, if they're not Jewish, you're correct. Uh, they're not allowed to steal, but, but still. Uh, yeah, but it does not throw off your count, meaning even if... Uh, now, what are you supposed to do with the oil? It's very interesting. You're not allowed to eat it. Yeah, it falls off the tree. Well, it falls off the tree, uh, but you're, you're not allowed to eat it. You know, if your animals, you're not allowed to feed it to your animals. If your animals eat it, that's their that's their business, so to speak. No, in other words, orla is like chametz. Chametz is different than regular treif. Regular treif, like even pig, I'm not allowed to eat, but I'm allowed. Like you know, dog food could be uh, you know pork or uh, be, but something like chametz, you're not. Not only is it forbidden to eat but you're also not allowed to get benefit from it. So that means you can't give it to your animal. Uh, you can't give it as a gift to a guy, because giving a gift is considered to be um, giving you benefit. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry, I want to mention something. Forgive me, I, I wanted to mention this. You know, today is, uh, happens to be my mother's uh, yard site, the anniversary of her death, so I would like to uh, dedicate the, the shear to, uh, to my mom. Just, uh, yeah. Very, amen, very careless of me not to, uh, not to mention it. Okay, uh, anyway. Uh, but uh, so anything that's forbidden to get hana from, you're not allowed to give to an animal or even give as a gift. But if your animal eats it on their own, that's not your responsibility. The animal doesn't have a sin. You have a sin to give it to your animal. Uh, the Mishnah says you're supposed to burn orla, like burning chametz. And it's a big kasha because that's not our custom. We don't do that. And indeed, the achronim are not so clear why we don't do that. But I can tell you that in spite of the Mishnah's ruling, uh, the custom is not to actually burn orla, you just let it rot, or throw it in the garbage, or whatever it is. By the way, uh, orla is used as a very interesting source for something else that has nothing to do with orla. That is, I'm sure you've, have you ever been to Upsharon? Somebody you must have had, that's when you give a, a child, a boy, their first haircut when they reach their third birthday. Some people wait till Agba Omer, some people just do it on the third birthday. And uh, that is when you inaugurate the child into Jewish chinuch, uh, Jewish education. They read psukim, right? They have all sorts of customs. You know, you put honey on the, on, on the letters of the olive bays and olive and lick, you know. So what is the makor? What is the source? It's not a halacha. You don't have to wait uh, till your uh, son is three years old before you give him a haircut. It's a minag. It's a minag that started with Sfardim, and then it spread to Hasidim from Sfardim, 
And then eventually it even penetrated the Lithuanian yeshiva world, even though it was not their custom at all. But now like everybody does an, what's called an upsharing. Or in, in, well, the, he, the Sephardic term, which is Arabic, is chalaka. And the chalaka. And the Yiddish term is upsharing, which just means cutting hair. That, that's all it means. So the Arizal says the source is from the idea. How's it again? Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they're different uh, terms. But the Arizal says that the source is that just like Orla, the, the fruits of the first three years are treated as wild, not able to be taken into the body. So too, a child for the first three years of his life is not yet capable of absorbing the Torah. But once he's three, he's like the fruit after the three years, is now ready to be eaten, ready to be consumed. Uh, and therefore, that is the source of the idea that the child is now ready for the Torah after three years. Now, again, I, I don't want to mix, no pun intended, apples and oranges. Uh, uh, the upshare in the halakha is not a halakha per se. It is not a, an obligation. If you want to give your ch uh, child a haircut early, you are permitted to do so. It's not like Orla. Orla is mama shadin. Really? You're allowed? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not a, I mean, it's not a halakha. But it's what is it? Um, it's, it's a minog. It's a minog oh, that many know. people, many people have, but not, not everybody. Not everybody has. Okay, what is a minog? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. It's a minog. Not 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 among everybody, but it's a minog among uh, so Svargim and among Hasidim. What, what about, about like, what? Yeah. You just said you could cut it earlier. What about not cutting it and waiting until they break? Oh, you don't know it till later. Well, uh, that would be the same thing. Uh, yeah, the same way you could do it earlier, you could do it later. Uh, you don't have to cut. You don't have to do it. But again, there are two minhagim. Some some would do it on the third birthday, the Hebrew birthday. And some do it on Lagba Omer, either the Lagba Omer before the third birthday, even there you have two versions, or the Lagba Omer after uh, the third uh, birthday. And as you know, uh, many people actually go up to Mehran. Have you been to Mehran for Lagba Omer? I guess, I guess this year was crazy. Yeah, hopefully, amen. Uh, but one of the th <laughs> one of the things they do in, in Mehran is people give the haircuts in Mehran and they throw the they throw the the hair into a bonfire. Uh, others weigh, it's interesting, they give the weight of the hair in gold to Tzedakah. So the hair doesn't weigh a lot, uh, obviously. No, but still, let's say it weighs two ounces, right? So two ounces of gold might, might be a few hundred dollars depending on the, on the, price, of, the price of gold. Huh? How can hair even weigh? Yeah, you need, you need, yeah, you need, you can't, you can't put it on a bathroom scale. You need like, yeah, but if you have a jeweler, a jeweler scale, it's like, right. you can actually weigh little, very, very little things. It'll be a, a fraction of an ounce or something, but it, it has weight. Hair does have a, does have a weight. Okay, so that's, I think, what you need to know about Orla. And again, let me just remind you that the same issue if something is a tree for purposes of Orla is also going to be relevant. Is it a vegetable or fruit? or So, for example, as I said, bananas are bereprei adama, and there's no law of orla with respect to bananas. Blueberries are bereprei because although it's a it's a low bush, it's a like a tree. It's a permanent thing. It doesn't have to be replanted. So you have to wait on blueberry bushes also. Say again. That, that is correct. That is correct. That is correct. People don't realize that. As opposed to strawberry. In other words, again, it's different. It all depends on how, how it grows. Yeah. Strawberry bushes don't. Are, are, are dumb. Blackberries. Uh, so black, I don't know. I have to, I have to check. I, I, I know blueberries are hoates. 
the blueberries have a din of orla, uh, and strawberries do not. Uh, blackberries, I can, I can check for you, but I, I don't remember off the top of my uh, top of my. Okay, so that's what you need to know about orla. And again, orla does apply in chutzlaaretz, but the difference between Israel and chutzlaaretz is that in Israel, if you have a doubt if something's orla, you have to be strict. In chutzlaaretz, if you have a doubt if something is orla, the halacha permits you to be lenient. But if you know it's orla, it is forbidden even in chutz la'aretz. Okay. Yeah, that is interesting. And that's unique for orla because you're 100% right. Normally, in any Torah law, you've got to be strict in cases of doubt. But this is a special uh, dispensation uh, for it. Uh, now, this, if any of you, <laughs> this is a problem. Now, I remember when uh, my son was growing up, so one of his books was called uh, Yedidja and the Esrog Tree. I wanted to plant an Esrog Tree. So he had to get the seeds of the Esrog and plant the tree. And what was our change was the point that even if you get Esrogim like right away, the tree grows after a year and you get Esrogim, uh, you cannot use an Esrog that's Orla for the mitzvah of Sukkot. In other words, this goes back to the idea that when something is Orla, it's not only that you can't eat it. The only problem would be I couldn't eat it. Okay, I'll use it for lulav and esro. But the halacha is you can't use it for any mitzvah either. So Yedidja was not permitted to use the esrogan for so many years. He was a little, so imagine a little child who plants a tree, what a great accomplishment that is. And all of these years he has to wait, 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 wait uh, before he could use the esrog for the mitzvah. Yeah. To grow up. You planted like a lemon tree or something, something like very fragrant that you yeah. use for like essential oils or something. Yep. Are you, you can't eat it, but are you allowed to use it for no? No, so, so, so that's the problem. The problem is since Orla is not only forbidden to eat, but it's forbidden to derive benefit from. So even things like aromatic oil or fragrance uh, would, be, would be forbidden for Orla. Now, the only thing is, what's interesting is, the Isser, though, is only for the fruit. For, so, for example, you can use the leaves of Orla. You can use the flowers of, of an Orla tree. Uh, you can even use the wood. You can cut, cut down the wood for firewood, uh, whatever, whatever it would be. So, on one hand, it's not limited to eating, but it is limited to the fruit. And not the other parts of the of the uh, tree. Okay, alrighty. So that's what you need to know about orla. So now we come to the second area, which is kilayim. Now kilayim is a term that's chaf lamid aleph yud final mem, and kilayim just means mixtures. And there's a lot of different mixture laws in the Torah. Let's mention a few mixture laws. Some of them we're not going to talk about today. You're not allowed to mix meat and milk. And keep in mind that it's not only you can't eat them, but you're not allowed to even cook them together. Mary. Right? Meat and milk, can't do that. Mm -hmm. Another example is wool and linen. You're not allowed to mix wool and linen in clothing. That is the issue of shotness. Again, I'm not going to talk about shotness so much today, but uh, let me just remind, uh, remind you that shotness is implicated when they are sewn together. So, for example, if you're wearing... Uh, a wool jacket over a linen shirt, even if they're touching each other, that's not a problem because they're not sewn together. Okay, but if on the other hand, there's even 
yeah, there's even one thread of linen, uh, you know, linen thread in your uh, wool uh, garment, uh, you have a problem of shotness. And uh, you cannot rely on labels, absolutely not, because labels do not have to show you 100%, meaning labels, uh, if something is less than 2% of a fabric, it does not have to tell you. Now, the good news is that linen is a fairly expensive thread, and usually they do not use, unless it says linen, usually they do not use linen, they'll use polyester, they'll use nylon. Now, these are synthetic things because they're cheaper, so you're not going to have a shotness problem, but sometimes there are shotness problems, and uh, it is important. There are directories and websites that tell you what things you get checked for shotness, what things you don't have to get checked for shotness. A lot of things you don't have to get checked because experience has shown it's not a problem, uh, but shotness is an example of mixing. Another example of mixing is you're not allowed to interbreed animals of different species. So let's take, for example, a mule. What is a mule? A mule is you mate a horse and a donkey. Now, it can go both ways. There are apparently two different names. I don't remember. One, uh, there's the male horse and female donkey. The mule is given one type of name. And then if it's a female horse and a male donkey, the mule is given... Uh, there are two types of mules, uh, depending on which parent is which. I don't remember the names. A liger. Yeah. A liger and a tie-in are the same animal, but it yeah. depends okay. on a liger, the lion, the dad, and the tiger's mom. Okay. And a tie-in... The right, so the same thing. So, so that would be that would be a forbidden that would be a forbidden interbreeding. And each like parrot is like it's a different animal, like it's a different. Yeah, one is a lion, one is a tiger. But I'm saying like the different parrots, like if the mom's the the like, name is different depending on but which one. Right, is but the, I'm saying is the animal like this? Like oh, does the animal look the same? Genetically, it's it's the same. Like it's half lion, half tiger. But but generally, uh, ligers tend to be bigger. So if the father is a lion, it'll, it'll be more like the father. Yeah. Okay. What about like breed? Like, no, no. Uh, and golden retriever. Oh, no, no. Okay, okay, I'll get to that. So, so inter, interspecies breeding is an isra do rice. It is forbidden to do what is called interspecies breeding. Now, one thing about, one thing about this is that you know, I, I, I mean, I know that a mule is sterile. Is that true for the uh, liger? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, in fact, the, the Rishonim say that one of the reasons why God does not allow uh, interbreeding of species is because it generally produces uh, infertility. Now, here, it does get very tricky. Number one, you are allowed to use a mule. I mean, you're not allowed to make a mule, uh, but once you have a mule that you buy, you can buy a mule. It's not like Orla. It's different than Orla. And you can ride it, you can work with it, uh, whatever, whatever it would be. Uh, you can get a pet... Uh, Ligon or whatever, that would be that would be okay. Now, a second question though is is your question, what is called different species? Let's consider dogs, right? Dogs. So uh, all sorts of dogs are. Uh, in fact, what do they say? They recommend to get a mutt. Uh, in other words, uh, mutts. In other words, a purebred is maybe prone to certain illnesses of the breed. Uh, the mutts are often the healthiest dogs uh, because whatever they have the best genetic qualities. Uh, well, first of all, buying a mud is not a problem anyway, I just said. Uh, but, but, but if you're a breeder, if you're an animal breeder, am I allowed to breed different types of dogs or cats 
uh, or, or the like, sheep, or sheep, for example. So there, uh, there is a, it's a complicated area of halacha, meaning in, in many, many cases, halacha will treat them as uh, a, sa- a same species that just looks differently. They're all dogs, even if they look very different. And the proof it would be if, if they could produce offspring, meaning the fact that they could produce offspring Oh, yeah, and then they uh, means that they're not sterile, meaning that they're not treated as the interbreeding of different species. So it is an interesting question. I mean, people do point out that uh, the variety of dogs, it's more so than cats, really, uh, the variety of dogs is, is immense. I mean, you have the most gigantic, I mean, cats, I mean, you have lions and house cats, but in terms of domestic cats, all domestic cats tend to be roughly the same size. With dogs, you have huge variations. Uh, coming from uh, breeding over over many many years. Abomination. Say again. Pugs. Pugs. Like abomination. They've been like, like <laughs> people bre- have bred pugs. They've like bred them to specific traits. Like yeah. I heard that was an issue in this world. Like most like, purebred dogs like, are breeding like, animals. Like, like breeding a uh, Chihuahua, which is this big, yeah. a poodle that's that big. Yeah. It's like not natural. They wouldn't naturally go together. But when they're placed in a room and they're both in. Yeah, nowhere else to go, yeah. Uh, well, as I say, halakhically it's not forbidden. I mean, there may be philosophical issues uh, that, you know, but on the other hand, um, well, well, a lot of things. Some, sometimes they, um, I, I know with bulldogs there's a lot of problems. Sometimes they, they breed dogs and they actually make it harder for them to breed. They want them, they want them to have a squished face because people, people think that's very cute, but it makes it very hard for the dog to, to breathe. Uh, the dogs have, have health problems. Um, yeah. Going back to the mule, can you pay like a non-Jew to, to breed that? Okay, so, so this is a, a good point. Uh, number one, many opinions say that interbreeding of animals is forbidden even for non-Jews oh, really? to do. Well, then how does, like... Uh, they're, not, they're not allowed to do it. I could buy, if it's already... If I didn't hire him, he just did it, I'm allowed to buy it, yeah. Right. But I'm not allowed to instruct him to do it because I'm causing a non-Jew to violate what's included in the Noahide so laws. If, if, if they're not allowed to breed it either, then yeah. why are you allowed to buy it? Because wouldn't that make them think they could do it? Uh, it's, it's a good point. It's a good point. So as I said, if you commissioned them and they wouldn't be doing it without, without you, then you wouldn't be allowed to buy it. But if the idea is that they have a market and they're doing this anyway, with you or without you, so you could benefit even from a sinful act after the fact. So I mentioned uh, meat and milk, I mentioned wool and linen, I mentioned injury of animals. So now let me mention tree grafting. Tree grafting. Uh, if any of you are uh, some state gardeners, uh, you may have done, uh, done some of this. Uh, that is, you not graft either trees or vegetables, and this will apply to us, by the way. You take a branch from one species, and you graft it onto the trunk of the species or to the root, whatever it would be. In fact, there's even something called a fruit salad tree. Have you ever heard of this? A fruit salad tree. Uh, this is a tree that produces different fruits. You can actually have a tree that has apples and pears and persimmons and lemons and oranges from repeating. Well, some people pay a lot of money for it because it's very unusual. Uh, in which different graftings produce these different fruits. Or, or now that's not a hybrid yet. In other words, this is actually a fruit salad tree. We actually have pure apple, pear, right? That's one type of 
graphene, then you have hybrid graphene that produced hybrid hybrid fruits. So, for example, uh, I mean, a peach and an apricot is something. But there are a lot of fruits. For a plum, a plum, plants is a plum and an apricot. And a what? A plum, an apricot. It's called a plumot. A lot of hybrid fruits. And this comes by grafting various parts of one tree into another tree. Now, there are other reasons why people do tree tree grafting. Sometimes it does not change the fruit at all. But let's assume the roots of one tree are resistant to disease. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. The Torah absolutely prohibits the grafting of one species of tree onto a different species of tree. And this is true. But if it helps it survive. Yes, even if it helps it survive. And this is true whether the fruit will be a hybrid fruit or whether it'll be a fruit salad situation or even if it's not going to even change the fruit of the tree but you've joined it it's in other words the Torah treats the cross uh, the cross grafting of trees the same way it treats the intermingling of animals can't do it now again uh, this only applies if it's a different species so if you have one type of apple versus another type of apple uh, that you're allowed to do, right? right? So that you're allowed to do because that is not called a different tree. Yeah. So let's say there's one donkey left in the world, and you're divorced in a donkey. Yeah. And there's one donkey left in the world, and the only way you can make it so that they won't go extinct is if you breed it with a mule. And let's say, let's say yeah, but you know, but listen, what what have, what have you accomplished? So the mule, the mule, the mule will be the last one in the world <laughs> because the mule's gonna die, and that's it. The mule is sterile. <laughs> so. Yeah, but let's say it's not sterile. It's, uh, well, well, okay, like, but, but. Like, I know what I'm saying, are you allowed to interbreed for the sake of your life? No, no, you're actually not. Or like, what if like the donkey needs a liver transplant and it needs to? Let's say like you're never able to do it, even in extreme circumstances. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, if your if your life is in danger, uh, then you can, but but you can't do it to save the animal's life. What's it called when a human breeds with an animal? Uh, it's called, well, you can't breed. I mean, well, it's not breeding. It's not breed. Like it's called mishkav behema. It's lying, lying with an animal. It's a real thing. And this is a know? people do it. Absolutely, people you go to do prison it. Prison for it. Oh, yeah. Bestial, bestial. No, no, I they do horse, horses, dogs. I mean, there's dogs. De- there is dogs. deviance in the world. I mean, I, I, mean, I know. Yeah, I, I, I saw a video of a way to start a relationship to the world. Someone had a relationship with a cow, like a genuine relationship. Someone had a relationship with a dog. Yes, absolutely. Like a love relationship. <laughs> Well, one can understand loving a dog. I don't question no, that, no, but, but it's, yeah, ta- like it's taken to a little bit of a, a little bit of an extreme. No, no. Now the Torah says we read it. Yeah, we read it yesterday. The Torah says uh, one that has sexual relations with an animal uh, is a capital crime. That's, that's put. Uh, that, that's put. Uh, that's put to death. Okay. Now, uh, one interesting question, though. Once again, it's parallel to the mule. These laws have parallels. I'm not allowed to create the hybrid fruits by grafting, but, but, but I'm allowed to eat it. I'm allowed to eat plumots and nectarines and the like. And not only that, I'm even allowed to plant them, meaning to say the following. I can't create the grafting, but once that fruit is created, I can use the seeds to plant new trees. So I could even be a gardener. I could, I could buy seeds of hybridized fruits 
and I can plant them. Um, although I'm not allowed to plant the original tree that was created by Avera, so I, I can't buy, which is something you have to know. When you're buying a tree, you have to know that a very high percentage of trees have been grafted with other species to make them stronger. And therefore you have to know, you, you wouldn't be allowed to plant such trees, so you actually need to check, get a hashgacha, and this applies in chutzvaretz uh, too. So that's tree grafting uh, to be aware of. Ramosha Feinstein raised an interesting question. We know the halacha that when you eat a fruit for the first time in the season, it was not available uh, out of season, and the fruit becomes seasonal. So in addition to the bracha berei priyo eats, you make the bracha shechianu. Now, in the United States, in big cities, many say you never make a shechianu. And the reason is, because the fruits are never out of season, really. I mean, you know, when you go to New York, you live in New York, you can get everything the whole year because they import it from all over the world. But in Israel, fruits are seasonal. In New York. Well, there are seasons in New York, but the point is the fruit is available the whole year. In other words, even out of season, most of the time you can get it's it. It's modern technology, but it's not actually available. What, what do you mean? It's not, well, well, like it's, it's only available because we ship it in or whatever. Yeah, I understand, but that's enough. Actually, in other words, because Shechianu is about the simcha, Oh wow! I haven't seen you know uh, apples you know for for three months. Oh, okay. if, if it's available, no matter why it's available, you don't have that joy. Uh, so if Moshe has a shaila, can you make a shechianu on a hybridized fruit? Because the question is, since it was created through sin, maybe it's not good to say, "Oh, thank you, Hashem, for the joy of well, seeing." This sin, or birchashila, the same thing, same thing, same same shaila. Do you make a shechianu? Do you make a nisan? Right? Do you make a blessing on a blossoming tree? Uh, the question is, if this tree was a hybrid, a tree graft, uh, do you make such a bracha on a sinful entity? So Rav Moshe says ultimately yes, because you're really not going so much on the specific. You're just kind of thanking Hashem for the beauties of the world that he created, and that could include uh, everything. Okay, so that's uh, tree grafting. Now, so uh, again, just uh, so we mentioned, just in terms of listing, we mentioned meat and milk, we mentioned wool and linen, we mentioned animal interbreeding, we mentioned grafting of trees, uh, whether it produces a new fruit, whether it produces multiple fruits, or even if it doesn't change the fruit at all, it just strengthens the uh, the root system, or, or whatever whatever it is. And now I'm going to mention uh, a halacha. Now, all, all of these things apply in chutzlaritz too, right? So everything I've talked about today applies whether you're in America or whether you're here in Israel. Uh, but the next thing I'm going to talk about is only in Israel. So, Baruch Hashem, you don't have to worry about this in America or chutzlaritz at all. And that is... When you have different types of vegetables, of different species, once again, different species, they cannot be planted right next to each other, even if you're not grafting them. They have to be distanced. So if you have, even if they're in separate flower pots, I have a pea plant and a tomato plant, they cannot be next to each other. They have to be distanced, okay? Again, this has nothing to do with grafting. You're not grafting anything. They just have to be separated a certain distance. Now, the distance is extremely complicated. It ranges 
Well, let, let's take this. Let, let, me, let me give you the case that you're most likely to have. Let's assume that you have two flower pots. One flower pot has a tomato plant, and the other flower pot has a pea plant. Okay? So there, you have to distance it around 20 inches from each other. They can't be next to each other. They certainly cannot be in the same flower pot. They got to be distanced. On the other hand, if you actually had garden patches, whole patches of garden, you may have to distance it as much as, uh, as 10 amos, which is 20 feet. So it, it very much depends, extremely complicated laws. I, I can't really go over them in detail. Uh, but as I say, if you're simply dealing with small plants next to each other, all you need is to separate them by around 18 to 20 inches. If you're dealing with big garden patches, the separation would have to be more. Uh, this is something a lot of people don't realize because people plant vegetables, whether it's lettuce, tomatoes, peas, they plant them in all close proximity. In Eretz Yisrael, now in Chutzlars you don't have to worry, you don't have to worry, but in Eretz Yisrael they have to be separated. Yeah? Um, I mean, this is a very specific question, back to the Shekhyana. Yeah. So, I'm from Seattle, so I'm a bit of an apple elitist. <laughs> so, like, I don't eat the, I haven't been eating any apples here because, like, I mean, look at them. So, <laughs> like, when I go home and I see, like, a nice big Washington apple, I'm like, wow, beautiful, like, I want it. Yeah, so, yeah. like, even though I've had apples around me the whole year, I haven't... Right, it's, 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 it's an interesting question because uh, even though it's still the same species, so to speak, but you're saying the joy of, of uh, such a higher quality fruit uh, could push you up there to give you the joy of making shechianu. But apparently, we, we don't do that. It has to be, you literally didn't, didn't have any species, even if you saw an inferior uh, variety. I know, uh, okay. Alrighty. Um, by the way, just a little thing about, um, you know, a few years ago, around 20 years ago, uh, an archaeologist discovered a date seed, some date seeds in Masada. You know what Masada is? Masada was a famous fortress. You know, people go to tour there today. And uh, this is the, when the Romans attacked Masada, so all the Jewish soldiers committed suicide. And uh, halakhati, that wasn't proper, but Masada to this day is still celebrated uh, in, by Zionists as the notion of not giving in to the enemy even if you take your own life. So they found in Masada some date seeds that are like 2,000 years old. No way. 2,000 years old. And the seeds were still able to germinate. Like the, the pit. The pit, I'm sorry, the oh, pit, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so they, they, actually plant, they actually planted the pit. And the pit generated a date palm. And they eventually, forget about Orla here, I mean, Orla, I don't know if they were keeping Orla, probably not, but uh, there was a fruit that was an edible fruit. And you know what it was? It was discovered. It was discovered, this is so interesting, that the sugar content of that date was double the sugar content of the dates that are grown in Israel presently. Now, the, greats, the dates that are grown in Israel presently are actually not indigenous. They're from California. They're standard American dates, although they, they've been planted in the Israeli climate. And it was discovered that the indigenous Israeli date is twice as sweet. Now, dates are pretty sweet anyway, but imagine this is twice the sweetness. It's 
So now you understand, when we talk about Eretz Yisrael is a land of milk and honey. You know that the honey in that verse is not bee honey. You, you, know, you know that. It's date honey. And now you understand that the honey was a real, 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 real sweet uh, deal. I'm not sure if they ever mass produced it or not. I, I don't know to this day when you buy dates, are you getting dates of that type or dates of that type? I, I don't know. Uh, but that was so, so fascinating that they were able to actually germinate. They also, I think, found matzah from Matsada that was still edible. Really? Yeah, well, matzah can you know, last a long time. <laughs> but they had matzah too. Very, very interesting. Okay. All righty. So that's what you need to know about distancing vegetables. But again, again, only in Israel, not in Chutzlaaretz, so you're safe. If you have a garden in New York or Seattle or wherever, a uh, roof garden or a garden in flower pot or something outside your window, uh, you don't have to worry about the vegetables being next to each other. But in Eretz Yisrael, you would have to worry. So it's something to be aware of that some gardeners uh, don't know. Yeah? There's such a thing as like edible flowers. Oh, okay, okay, e excellent point. Uh, the, okay, first of all, let me point out, the laws of distancing are only edible things, like vegetables, grain, legume, uh, it does not apply to inedible things like flowers or plants. Uh, now the question then becomes... What about like uh, Oh, so the question then becomes, again, these are halachic shilas, what if something is edible only as an herb, meaning you don't eat it directly? That's very, again, basil, uh, rosemary, uh, mint, uh, all of these different things. Uh, people don't chew them as regular food, but they're used to uh, add, add things. Are they treated as food, or is they treated not as food? Yeah. Uh, if they are treated as food, you'd have to distance. You couldn't plant mint and basil in Eretz Yisrael next to each other. You'd have to distance them. Uh, if they're not treated as food, or, or th then you're allowed, you're allowed to plant them. Say again. We we grow mint. I don't think oh, so. dill, yeah. Yeah. yeah, dill, yeah, yeah, yeah. So some people, some people, especially in recent years, some people actually eat them as, uh, you know, they chew their, their mint or their dill. Yeah. So it's better to be machmir. It's better to treat uh, those types of spices as edible food. And if it's edible food, you have to, in Eretz Yisrael, you have to distance them uh, appropriately. But again, as I say, I, to repeat again, in Chutzla Aretz, this is not a concern. So you can have everything mixed up. Now, the final thing, again, <laughs> I'm covering just a lot of different things today, uh, is one other type of mixture that does apply even in Chutzla Aretz. And that only applies if you have a vineyard. Okay? Uh, grapes. Uh, and there are special, special rules about grapes. And that is, if you have vines that are producing grapes, then even in Chutzla Aretz, you are not allowed to plant vegetables or grains or legumes in proximity to grapes. You're allowed to plant trees. Trees can be in proximity to everything. But you cannot plant uh, wheat or legumes or tomatoes or peas in proximity to grapes. And that applies even in Chutzla Aretz. And that is called Kalayim Kalay Hakerem. That is uh, mixtures pertaining to a vineyard. Uh, and what is the proximity here? So it depends. If you have five vines, a minimum of five vines, you got to distance your other thing four amos, which is like eight feet. If, however, you have less than five vines, 
you only have to distance uh, six tvachim, which is around 18 inches, right? So, there, so there's a difference there. Okay, again, uh, uh, now there are two main differences between the vineyard laws and the non-vineyard laws. Number one, the vineyard laws apply even in, even in chutzlaritz. The non-vineyard laws does not. Number two, now this is very interesting, uh, in the vineyard laws, if you violate them, everything becomes forbidden to eat. In other words, if I plant in Eretz Yisrael basil next to rosemary, I'm not allowed to do that. But if I harvest it, I'm allowed to eat it. If, on the other hand, I planted uh, rosemary next to my vineyard, then the grapes are forbidden to eat and the rosemary is forbidden to eat. Right? So it's a very chomer thing. It's chomer that it applies in chutz la'aretz, and it's chomer that it also forbids consumption of the product. Yeah. What if there's a plant that you aren't going to eat, but you're going to use it for like um, incense, or like you know pe- people will like burn sage for their house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does that work with, like, Yeah, that's a good question. It seems to be that uh, even if your individual use is not to eat it, if it's something that is edible, these laws would apply. And if it's not edible? Then then it doesn't apply. Then it does does not apply. The the rules of, of proximity to either a vineyard or to other vegetables does not apply for inedible things, okay? Okay, so this is, again, I probably told you more than you, than you need to know, but, but it's good to at least be aware of this, uh, all of these different uh, mixing uh, laws and, and how, they, uh, how they apply. And remember, the distancing applies even if they are in separate flower pots and the like. That is not enough of a distancing. Although it's interesting, a wall is, an actual wall is, meaning to say, if someone has a vineyard, and there is a fence. I'm allowed to plant vegetables right up to the fence. A fence is considered to be a valid barrier that dispenses with distancing requirements, even if it's my own fence, even if I own both sides of the fence. Uh, that would be good. And in fact, there's even a machlokas if an Arab would be good enough. <laughs> Can you, you right? what, what is an Arab? An Arab, you understand the kind of, is, is, is really an artificial fence. The concept of a wire on top of two poles is treated like a halachic wall. So some say if you have like the, the poles of an Arab and on one side you have grapes and on the other side you have vegetables, we would treat them as we would treat the Arab as a wall, and you don't have to have the distance. Yeah, that's a machlokas, but certainly if it's a solid wall, that's for sure uh, going to be going to be the case. Okay, so that's a little bit to know about uh, Jewish gardening. Of course, uh, later we'll talk about shemitah. Shemitah. Well, I might as well mention it now, just a little bit. Uh, this coming year, fifty-seven eighty-two. Is that right? Is a shemitah year. Now, Shemitah also does not apply outside of Israel, so there's no problems there. But in Eretz Yisrael, there are going to be a lot of laws. I'm not going to talk about all of them now, but I just want to talk about the gardening restrictions. Uh, Shemitah, you're not allowed to plant, right? You're not allowed to cultivate. So the question becomes, 
what do you do on Shemitah in a very simple situation? We're not talking about big farmers, whatever. You have a garden. You have a flower garden. Uh, you have a vegetable garden. Uh, you have fruit trees. What are you allowed to do on Shemitah? You certainly cannot plant new things, that, that's for sure. The Torah says you cannot plant on Shemitah. So the basic halacha is this. This is the important halacha. You are allowed to do whatever is necessary so your plant will not die. But you're not allowed to do anything beyond survival of the plant. So you can water your flowers and your trees and your vegetables because without water, they're going to die. Uh, if they are infested with bugs or whatever that are likely to kill the plant, you're allowed to do that type of maintenance. But you're not allowed to do anything that will improve its rate of growing. So once again, I'm not an expert in gardening myself, but you would have to speak to a specialist. What is necessary for survival would be permitted. What is for the flourishing and improvement of a plant would not be permitted. Okay, So that's kind of the basic rule of what you're allowed to do in Shemitah in the uh, garden. And this is true for trees. This is true for vegetables. This is true for legumes, grains, whatever, whatever it would be. You can do it to keep it from, keep it from uh, dying. Okay. All righty. So the final thing I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to probably talk about this next week, is something that's very, very practical for everybody. Some of the other stuff we only apply to gardeners. Yeah. Um, I just had a question about the grapevine. Yeah. Where I live, we rent houses. There's no way we could own it. Um, but where we live, we have a grapevine that was already there and we moved it. Are we allowed to eat them? Well, is the grapevine kind of is the grapevine in proximity to, to other things? You think? I mean. Yeah, we, but it's not next to anything that's really edible. Really oh no! So so you don't have a problem there. We have a fruit tree, but it doesn't produce anything. Oh, okay. So so again, again. There is no problem with vines being proximate, uh, proximate to a tree. Okay. That's perfectly okay, even if it's fruit bearing. Okay? Uh, where you would have a problem is if the vines would have proximity to vegetables. Mm -hmm. That would be a problem. And then you would not be allowed to eat the, either the vegetables or the grapes to the degree that they grew together. Mm -hmm. They grew at the same, you know, the same time. So that would have to be uh, something to be worried about. Yeah. Uh, that's very true. Uh, but as I say, if the only proximity issue is to a tree, then it's perfectly fine whether it's a fruit-bearing tree or not a fruit-bearing tree. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I'm caution about this, but if you don't own the plant, is it... Yeah, yeah, so, so, so here's the halakha. Even if you do not own it, uh, it still becomes forbidden. It, it's a forbidden thing for you to eat. Now, that doesn't apply to other mixtures. I, I say basil next to rosemary, even in Echer Yisrael, would not be a problem of eating. But with vineyard rules, that's much, much stricter. It even becomes forbidden, uh, forbidden to eat. Okay, all right. Now, the next thing I'm going to talk about, which I'm only going to begin today, is the mitzvah of separating challah. Now, this is a, a mitzvah that is already in the kitchen, it's not in the garden. Uh, but the basic idea is what? Uh, originally, we don't do this today exactly, when a person made a dough, and the dough was a certain size, 
So you would take off a piece of that dough before baking, and you would actually give it to a Kohen as a gift. The Kohen would then bake it into bread. And that, that separation is called challah. See, it's a whole misnomer. Uh, when, when, you, when, you, when you say the word challah today, so everybody thinks, oh, that's that braided bread that we eat, that Jews, Jewish people eat on Shabbos. Well, that's true. That's how it's used today. But that's not really what it is. Challah in the Torah is the part of the dough that you gave to a Kohen as a gift. It's not a name of the whole loaf of bread. So why do we call the whole loaf of bread challah today? I mean, it's not challah is what you would give to the Kohen. The answer is because it was the minag of Jewish women before there were bakeries. Many do it even today. It's a wonderful minag that they would bake special bread. They would bake bread in honor of Shabbos, and they would separate the challah to give to the Kohen. So it became known as challah bread, not not because of the way it looks. Even rye bread could be, you know, uh, it was called challah bread because it was the bread from which you took off challah and you gave it to a Kohen. Remember, Kohanim and Levim did not have land in their Israel. They lived off the gifts that the Torah says you're supposed to give to the Kohen and the Levi. And one of the gifts was challah. So challah is taken from dough, given to the Kohen. Again, today, today we don't do that, I'll explain why. Uh, why uh, uh, how much do you give to the Kohen? Right? How much of the dough are you, were you supposed to take off and give to the Kohen? So it depends. If you were making dough for yourself and your family, you would give one twenty-fourth of the dough and give it to the Kohen. If you were a baker who was making the dough for commercial business, you only had to give one forty-eight because it was your business, it was your parnasa, so we gave you a lower tax rate. Now today, it is still the case that when you're making a dough, it has to be a certain size, I'll get to the size, you separate challah, but today you will notice you don't give the challah to the Kohen, rather today you burn the challah. So question one is, if the Torah says you're supposed to give the challah to the Kohen, why today do we burn the challah and don't give it to the Kohen? Right? We burn challah. The answer is that challah can be eaten only if the Kohen is in a state of ritual purity. If a Kohen is Tameh, the Kohen cannot eat the challah. Today, every single person in the world is in a state of ritual impurity, and it's impossible to get out of it. Why is that? Because if you have ever been in a cemetery in your life, you're tummit. And the only way you can become pure is by being sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer, the paraduma. And going to the mikvah will not help. You need sprinkling plus mikvah. Mikvah helps for nida. That's okay. That's true. But for the tumma of mace, you need the ashes of the paraduma. 
So as a result, every Kohen today is Tomei. And every person separating Chala made the Chala Tomei. So Chala that's Tomei cannot be eaten, and, and, and a Kohen that's Tomei cannot eat Chala. So in such a situation, we no longer give Chala to the Kohen. We burn it. Now, because we burn it, that changes the quantity as well. This is important. When you gave the challah to the Kohen, you wanted to give him something significant. You gave him 124th, you gave him 148th. That's something, the big dough. Right? Think about a bakery, how much dough a bakery makes. 148th could be quite a lot, actually. But if the challah is going to be burnt anyway, then we have the opposite orientation. It's better to give lesser than more because it's going to waste. So today, we do not take 124th or 148th. We take a little piece the size of a kezayis, the size of an olive, and that's going to be burnt. Okay? So there are two changes in how we separate challah today from the way we did it when there was a Beis HaMikdash. In the time of the Beis HaMikdash, we gave it to a Kohen. Today, we just burn it. Number two, in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, we separated 124th of the dough, or in the case of a bakery, 148th of the dough. Today, we just take a little piece, typically the size of a kezayis, no matter how large a quantity, even if you're a bakery, that is a huge amount of dough, 30 pounds of dough, 100 pounds of dough, 200 pounds of dough, you just take the size of an olive, and that's going to be going to be enough. Do the okay? wives have gone separate Say again? Yes, 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 yes. Well, because uh, until challah is separated, uh, the dough cannot be eaten at all. Yes, yes, that's correct. Well, they didn't have to give it away. Uh, a kohen would separate challah, and then he could eat it. But, but until it was separated. He was not, was not allowed to eat it. Same thing with truma. It's exactly the same as truma, meaning um, the truma that's taken from grain, Kohanim have to separate it, but then they can give it to themselves. Right. Yeah. Okay? So this is what chala is about. Now, question number uh, number two. Right? So that's chala generally. Question number two, uh, is chala a mitzvah only in Eretz Yisrael, or is it a mitzvah even outside of Eretz Yisrael? So here, again, on a Torah level, on a Torah level, challah is only a mitzvah in the land of Israel. Da'oraisa, there is no obligation to separate challah outside of Eretz Israel. But, as you undoubtedly know, because you probably have separated challah, midrabanan, rabbinically, there is an obligation of challah not only in Eretz Israel, but also in Chutz Laaretz. So, Bottom line is, you're going to separate challah whether you're here or whether you're there. But there's a big difference. Here, it's a Torah commandment. There, it's a rabbinic commandment. Now, even in Galat, even in Ezra, we're still uh, from Torah and Israel? Well, uh, no, 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 actually, okay. okay. I, I, I was trying to get away with being over simple. No, no, Rech Hashem, it's good that you caught me on it. I was. Uh, uh, oversimplifying. Uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, even in Eretz Yisrael, Bizman Hazeh, Chala is only Drabanan, because Chala is unique, that the mitzvah of Chala only applies if most of the Jews are living in the land of Israel. 
And since most of the Jews of the world are not yet living in the land of Israel, Chala, even in the land of Israel, is Midrabanan, not the Oasis. So you are correct that in this day and age, it will be rabbinic in both places. Now, uh, one thing about this, this is a very general question, which of course applies uh, in a million things. When you separate challah from the dough, you actually make a blessing. Baruch Hashem. Blessed are you Hashem. Like you make a blessing. And uh, it basically says, Asher Kiddushan of a mitzvah you commanded us with your mitzvahs to separate challah. So how can you say that? If the Torah doesn't obligate you and it's only rabbinic, how can you say Hashem commanded me? Now, the truth of the matter is, this question you can ask in a, gazil a gazillion places. Lighting Hanukkah candles. Does the Torah say to light Hanukkah candles? The whole story of Hanukkah happened after the Torah. And we still say God commanded us, right? Shabbos candles. The Torah doesn't say you have to light candles for Shabbos. It's Rabbana. Reading Megillah. So the Rambam explains, this is a very general question, that even on rabbinic commandments, we still make the bracha that God commanded us because in Sefer Devarim, Hashem commanded us to listen to whatever the Chachamim say. That's a pasuk, lo sasor mikol lecha yaminu right? Do not depart from what the Chachamim tell you. So it turns out every rabbinic commandment becomes like a Torah law. And that's why you can make the, make the bracha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, again, I, I have not yet addressed how large a dough you need. That's a very, very important question, but we'll talk about it. But I want to mention one final aspect here. There is a law, a halacha, that you cannot separate challah on Shabbos or Yom Tif. So if you're separating challah, you've got to do it before Shabbos. If it's Shabbos and you forgot to separate the challah, Right, you already have the bread, but you forgot to separate the challah, you can't separate. This is true in Israel and it's true in Chutzlars. So what do you do? Right, what do you do? What if I made a dough and I was supposed to separate challah and I forgot to do it and I baked it and I have all this bread, but I didn't separate challah. Now, if it be during the week, you have to separate challah from the bread. If you didn't do it from the dough, you do it from the bread. That's what you do during the week. And after Shabbos, that's what you got to do. But what if that's my only bread for Shabbos? What do I do? I can't separate the chama. So here, interestingly enough, there's a difference between Eretz Yisrael and Chutzla Eretz. This is a very interesting distinction. In Eretz Yisrael, you are not allowed to eat the bread until you separate the chama. And that means... If it's Shabbos and you didn't separate the challah, you just cannot eat that bread. What are you going to eat? You're going to have to borrow bread from a friend. You cannot eat the bread on Shabbos if challah has not been separated from that dough. In Chutzlah because the mitzvah of challah is less of an obligation, we allow you to kind of do it on credit, meaning you can't separate the challah, but you can eat the bread leave over a piece, a little piece, and after Shabbos, 
you can make that little piece, you can declare it to be challah. You don't, you don't declare it to be challah on Shabbos, but you declare it to be challah, you know, after Shabbos you declare it to be challah. Okay, but that's a dispensation that is only permitted in Chutz La'aretz, that is not permitted in Eretz Yisrael. What if you go to someone's house who like, doesn't know and they prepared you like a kosher meal? They kosher all their things. Yeah. You in Israel. Uh, you're, in, you're in trouble. You can't eat. The, you can't eat the bread. I mean, you cannot eat the bread. The bread is like non-kosher bread for you, uh, because until the challah. Okay. You just don't eat bread, okay? So then. You uh, so say you, you have a bread allergy, whatever. You, I mean, you're allowed to lie in this. I mean, uh, you can just mm-hmm. say that uh, you don't eat bread or whatever, whatever it would be. Yeah. yeah. No, but I'm saying like then it's fine. You well, if the reason you're not eating bread is because the bread is not kosher for you to eat, then yeah. you're certainly not sinning. The sin would be if you'd eat the bread. So not what, if you don't what about it. on normal Shabbos with normal challah, if you don't want to eat the challah? I'm not saying allergies. Okay, so normally normally you should eat a little bit because you're obligated to have three meals on Shabbos. Yeah. Uh, two of them should be have to be bread. The third one doesn't, doesn't have to be bread. Uh, so, uh, again, if you have allergies, if you have gluten intolerance, uh, cel- uh, celiac disease, uh, you know, then you certainly don't have to eat bread. Uh, but otherwise, uh, otherwise, you should uh, eat a little bit of bread. Okay. So uh, next week we'll continue about challah. I want to talk about what types of doughs. Is there a difference between bread dough, cake sourdough. dough, cookie dough, sourdough, uh, pancake dough? A lot of different types of yeah, blintzes, blintzes dough. Uh, what about banana bread things? Okay. So we'll talk about the types of breads and cakes and cookies that you have to separate challahs. There's a difference between thick dough and thin dough. There's a lot of different uh, issues there. How much flour are we talking about? If you're making just a small amount of flour, generally you don't have to separate challah. Right? So this is important. You, you may, I'm, I'm sure you've done, I'm sure you've looked at this. You know, a lot of, uh, mystically, there's a whole big deal. Uh, when uh, women get together and make challah together, they have all sorts of Kabbalistic thoughts and prayers and brachos. It's become like, particularly in Eretz Yisrael, it's become a big, big deal uh, that when someone is sick or there are cholim, uh, women get together and they bake, not so much bake, they, they make doughs and they uh, separate challah with different kavanas. So it's good to know the, the basic halachas of this. So you'll have a sense if you ever participate in the ritual, uh, you'll understand halachically what it is that you are uh, that you are doing. Okay, ready? Okay, be well, stay healthy, and chodesh chodesh tov.